0: So if you have your Bibles, turn to Romans 1, verses 1 through 7, and we're right here at the very beginning. And, and where we are, just just to re, recapture, and let's, let's step back just for a second before we launch right into this, is that we're doing the Apostles' Creed, and we're preaching on each part of it exposed next one after another. So I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus, his only begotten Son, our Lord, who was... Conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So that's where we are this Sunday. But next Sunday is suffered under Pontius Pilate. So you realize where we are this Sunday in the Apostles' Creed. Conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Pause. Suffered under Pontius Pilate contains the whole extent of his earthly ministry right there. You know, they don't talk about like, and he walked on water, and he healed the sick, and he preached, and he said the good news, and he fed the 4,000, and he fed the 5,000, and he confronted Nicodemus, and it doesn't say all those things. So what does this part of Jesus coming in the flesh How do we best kind of wrap our hands around that? What did Jesus do? What was He like? What was God become flesh, fully God, fully human like? And so, in contemporary, I'm going to go completely this direction, but I want to set up for you the importance of Jesus's earthly ministry comes when we kind of put Him through a grid. So this is going to be a little bit of a a little bit of an apologetics uh, from my angle about how we know Jesus is who He says He is. How we know Jesus is who other people, and by other people, we mean what the old testament what he has said about himself in the old testament what prophets have said about him and then let's measure that what other people said what he said and then his life and let's run it through that grid but first before we put jesus through that grid let's put michael jackson in it what did other what do other people say about michael jackson well let's let's talk about that we're not even going to go to bad things we're just going to go well i say bad we'll get to that word later but describing him people are going to say well very talented dancer. By by talented, what do you mean? Just a lot of this and a lot of this and just very talented dancer. What, well, and is he a very talented singer? Sa- yes, he is a very talented singer and his voice is, do you have a real manly man? No, he doesn't, but I mean it's kind of like a, there's a lot of and all kind of stuff like that, you know, and, and he is a great singer. Yeah, and so he's, he's a very talented dancer and he's a very talented singer and he's a, he's a choreographer and he's very creative and That's what, you know, we'll we'll, we'll just give him the benefit of the doubt and just talk about the things that Michael Jackson, other people say about him. Now let's go to the things that Michael Jackson said about himself, and we'll just concentrate on one area. Michael Jackson said he was bad. But this is where we combine the part about what Michael Jackson does and what he claimed about himself. Because when he claimed that he was bad, he said it like this, who's bad? Who's bad? At the beginning of the bad video, he goes, You ain't bad! You ain't nothing! And then the whole song, he just, at the very end of every single one, Who's bad? And then he'll just dance away. Michael Jackson has a huge problem. What other people have said about him, what he claimed about himself, and then what he actually does... Don't add up. Because he is not bad. I'm pretty sure a stiff wind could take him out. But what if we ran that same grid against Christ? What other people have said about him, what he has claimed about himself... And what his life live actually looked like. Because that third part is supremely important. Because what we're talking about is the word became flesh, lived among us. And if we were going to put like a parenthesis in there, we would say for 30 years, 33 years. 30 years of normal, 3 years of, of public ministry. And, and we can say a lot about, and this is something that, I, that I've heard Tim Keller say. We can say a lot about, we can know a lot about someone by their actions. But, but again, I know a lot of my neighbors by their actions. I know that they walk their dogs. I know that they come out about a certain time to get their mail. I know that they bring their trash out. I know the kind of car that they drive. I know how fast and how slow. I know a lot of their actions. But what we would say was, but I don't know them until I have a conversation with them. And conversation requires what? Words. And so God comes down and not only acts and moves and lives and walks that we might see him. But what? John 1 tells us too, that he is the very word of God. We not only can see God operate, but we can know God by his words. And so in Christ we get what others have said about him, what he claims about himself. But then does it all add up in his life in that time between conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, and suffered under Pontius Pilate? And so will God in the flesh add up? Will he, will he add up? Will he add up? to to be what others have said, what he has claimed, and what his life is like. So let's look at the text. If we look at the text, I want you to stop because, you know, most most sermons that you're going to hear about Romans chapter 1 are going to really concentrate especially about what that letter was all about. But I want you to just do Romans 1, 1, and just let me just tell this to you. Romans 1, 1 is the most Jewish guy ever in Paul. Claiming that the most significant thing about him is not his religion anymore, but is Jesus Christ. And as a matter of fact, he identifies himself. The greatest identifier that Paul can give to a group of people now is that he is a servant, a bond servant for life to Jesus Christ. And then the other part of it is we see in Paul God's incredible plan. Because what we see in Paul, and Paul would tell you this in both Acts and Galatians and in Philippians. Excuse me, he would say, "Listen." If there was anyone that could know all the intricacies going all the way back of this very unique Jewish religion with all of its history, with all of its personages, with all of its prophecies, with all of its different commands and all of its different rituals, I studied all of that and then Jesus Christ came and now my mission is to connect people from all of this that seems so foreign to them that has now become fulfilled in Christ and my mission then is now to share this with the world, to connect the world to what God has always been doing and has now come to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ is the biggest, most amazing part about me. I have been saved by him. And I want you to see how it all comes together in Christ. So in verse two, verse two, he begins and tells you something like this. He says, now this gospel, it's not anything new. And you go, no, wait a minute. Isn't that why we call it the New Testament? We call it the New Testament because it's a beginning of a different kind of ministry. But the gospel goes all the way back to Genesis 3, 5. The minute that sin enters the world, God promises, he says, there will be an offspring of you, the woman, and you will come to evil or come to Satan, and he will strike at your heel, but you will crush his head. And that is called the Proto-Evangelion, which means the first place that the gospel is actually promised. And so he says, this is not something new. I'm here to tell you about the message of the gospel, which was God's plan to save people from the beginning. He uses Romans to connect all of the dots from the Old Testament to Jesus and then there forward. And then verse 3, verse 3, verse 3 and 4, if you were to simply just say, we remember that sometimes we throw around the word gospel a lot, but gospel at its core means good news. Good news is not anything that you have to do, right? If I come to you and I say, good news, they're giving away everyone a free gallon of milk at Lowe's. You know, that's good news, Nobody said, like, now do, do ten push-ups and I'll tell you this news. The good news simply is what it already is. And so three and four are the gospel. They are the good news. And then, there, of course, is how we respond to it. But central to the gospel in verse 3, Jesus was a man. I know that you think that's, wow, Jesus, okay, tell me something I don't know. But stop also as well. It's like his name was Jesus. One of the most common names ever at that period of time, Yeshua, God chose to be named Jesus. That's kind of like saying, hey, if if he had come today, he would have been like, Hey, I met the Son of God. What's his name, Jeff? Wouldn't he have had some like really cool, like overlord? No. His name is Yeshua. He wants you to see just how human he is, the humanness of God. But this goes back to Isaiah 7:14, where the Messiah is promised to be born of a virgin. But that means to be born into human form, born of a virgin, and then into David's royal line. Now that's significant because in 2nd Samuel 7:12 7, through 17 God comes and he has a covenant with David and he says listen I will raise up one from your line who will be the one who will lead my people and he's, it's this messianic promise. And so here in Christ, the promise not only of the born of a virgin as, into a man, but also the Messiah promise to Davis's, David's line. And then we get to verse 4 and we say, say it one more time. And his name is Jesus, Yeshua. It is such a common name. And then it says this as well. He didn't come up and tell everyone, hey, I'm the Messiah. He was declared to be the Messiah by God the Father through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is so different when Joseph Smith stands up and says, I'm a prophet of God. Muhammad stands up and identifies himself as, I'm a prophet of God. And Buddha comes up and understands himself, I am the one that knows the way to the way. This is God saying, and of course we see it again at the baptism. Here is my son in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. Identified and declared by God, not created by God. But just identified because God, who was part of the triune Godhood, came and was born of a woman and dwelt among us. Not all of a sudden became God, but called by God because that's what he was and has been and always will be. And so then we get to this part where it talks about the resurrection and we get right in here in verse 4. And then we jump right into the end of the beginning right here. We don't even really get into Christ's ministry. We just go right to the end. And he was resurrected by the Holy Spirit. Now that's the part, the end part of the gospel where we go, that means that Jesus who came in the flesh, who was 100% God but 100% flesh, perfectly fulfilled the law by fulfilling it all in the flesh. So that when he dies on the cross for our sins, after perfectly fulfilling God's law in the flesh, something that we could not do, when he dies, the Holy Spirit says, Payment accepted. Payment not only adequate, payment over the top. Payment completely more than adequate. And then it's just kind of like when you get that check back from the bank and it says check cleared. When he rises from the dead, that's God the Father putting the stamp on it and going, payment accepted for people's sins by the Holy Spirit. Then in verse 5. Verse 5 is then again, we have come to announce the good news We've not come to announce something that you have to do. We're coming to tell you what has already been done for you. That's the good news. What has already been done for you. And then he's going to lead the people in Romans to how they respond to it, which is where we were a few weeks ago, which is Romans 10.9. If you believe in your your heart that Jesus is Lord and confess with your mouth that he's been raised from the dead, then you will be saved. I think I got that backwards. But he's leading them to that. He's saying, this is the good news. You don't have to go out and create it. It has been done for you. It's news. You can't go out and change it. It simply is. Then verse 6, he's going to then remind them. And verse 6, also, if you you just want to make a note to look later on at 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14. Paul is saying the same thing. He says to the Romans, now listen, you have been set apart. You have been chosen by God, set apart for salvation through the Holy Spirit. And so and then in 2 Thessalonians 2, 13 through 14, he says again to them, you were loved, you were chosen, you were set apart for salvation through the Holy Spirit. You were called when you heard the gospel. And he wraps it up in verse 7. And he says, you know, in this, this, this last part, what he's saying to them again is, the gospel is inherently a love invitation to God. And so Paul then ties God the Father with Jesus as Lord, and so what does he end it? He says, "May the grace, may grace and peace be yours from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ." And inherent in that are two things that we we have sung since we were little, 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 and we would say, "What two words have gone together in that hymn? Trust and obey." For there's no other way. And so you've got trust the Father, obey the Lord, and it comes together in this perfect. What was? The part like between the conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, 33 years in the flesh, and suffered under Pontius Pilate.
1: I thought about trying to imitate Michael Jackson, too. (laughs) Which is why I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Not happening, Jerry. Sorry. So in your bulletin on the right-hand side, for those of you who don't come from a tradition where we affirm the Apostles' Creed on a regular basis, you will see the words in the gray text box. And we're just wa- making our way through this as we, as we move toward Easter. And so uh, we're in the second paragraph uh, last couple of weeks. And in Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, our Lord, and this week, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. So we could spend our time, and, uh, and it would be a worthy time spent, to think about the miraculous part of that, conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. Uh, but that really has to do more with his deity, with, his, with the fact that Jesus is fully God, and that's where we've been the last couple of weeks. So I wanted to think about more the, the human part of that. Jesus was conceived. Jesus was born. And as Pastor Paul said, the creed skips from there all the way to suffered under Pontius Pilate. So we've got basically the lifespan of his humanity that is before us today. What does it mean to us that Jesus is fully man, that he shared our uh, flesh? What does it mean that he is one of us? And I'm not going to say anything today that is new to most of you uh, but I really want you to feel that and experience it today in a fresh way. So let me go back for me to a story where this idea first sort of came home to me. And I remember I, remember I was in sixth grade when I first heard that Jesus actually shared our humanity. And some of you have heard me say before that I wet the bed until I was uh, 15 years old. So let me take you back to sixth grade, which is the last year that we were in Pakistan as missionaries. And I shared a uh, a sort of dorm-style room with triple-deck bunk beds with 14 other boys, so 15 boys in a room, uh, three to each of five beds. And imagine being the only boy in the room that gets up every single morning with a wet bed. I was terrified that somebody would tell the girls in the sixth grade horrible and i had a i had a boarding master uncle jim by name and he didn't cane me for wetting the bed as he did uh, some of the other more rebellious boys for things that they did and deserved it but he did shame me for wetting the bed and i remember one one uh particular time when he he decided he was going to get me to stop wetting the bed by giving me shorter and shorter time every day to get up change my clothes change the bed get a bath and get dressed and uh, so I think I got it down to five minutes and I still made it but you know it's like of all the things that you could do to a kid to say I'm going to help you stop wetting the bed by putting pressure on you and shaming you in front of your friends and then I remember asking myself If Jesus went through everything that we went through, does that mean that Jesus wet the bed? We'll come back to that in a moment. But I want you to live for just a few minutes with the idea that Jesus was conceived. Jesus was a, Jesus, the Son of God, was a zygote. He was a blastocyst. He was an embryo. He was a fetus. Jesus developed inside a woman's womb. Jesus passed through a birth canal. He was laid in a manger of straw. This is the Son of God. God soiled his diaper. God had his parents arguing with each other whether he was going to say Amma or Abba first. God had to get up on two feet and and toddle across the room for the very first time. God played with other boys, and they weren't always nice to him. God hit puberty, and suddenly girls were more interesting to him than they were before then. God showed up in Jerusalem at age 12 and thoroughly confounded the the teachers, but but did it through Ordinary questions and answers. God knew what it was like for his daddy to die, probably when he was a teenager, and to go through grief and pressure of being the oldest boy in a family and knowing that somebody now had to care for the family. God was poor in his family. God knew what it was like to do hard work with his hands. God knew what it was like to wonder whether The bills this month would be met. God knew what it was like to be fully human. What does that mean to us? The New Testament offers some other scriptures that sort of unpack this for us, and I'm going to do something sort of untypically Bob here, and I'm going to go to some other scripture passages, and this is not right. Okay. Um, That wasn't supposed to chime. Jesus knew what it was like when technology didn't work for you. Okay, now I'm coming back to that, all right. So uh, there are three passages in particular, and there are a number of others that I could go to. But I, I'm building off this idea that in Romans 1, where Pastor Paul said uh, that the Scripture tells us that Jesus shared our humanity. The, word, uh, the two words in Greek are actually, Jesus lived according to flesh, and most translators won't use it that way because flesh, in most of Paul's writings, in most of the Romans, is a negative word. It has to do with the sinful flesh. But it literally just means that he had a body like ours. Jesus lived out his life according to flesh in verse 3. So what does that mean for us? This idea that Jesus was fully human is central to Paul's gospel. So let me give you three other passages quickly. One is from First Timothy chapter 2, verses 5 and 6. Where Paul writes, for there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all people. So I want you to think about three words, and the first one is mediation. That Jesus could not be our mediator unless he were fully human. Now I wrestled with the word mediator this week, the idea of mediation, because in our culture... It's usually a lose lose proposition. It's two people that can't get along, and by the end of mediation, nobody's happy, right? So that's not the idea behind the word. What you do have is two people at variance or two parties at variance, but at the end, it's a win win situation, the idea of mediation. So, in order to get to the win win solution in mediation, you need to be able to fully grasp and understand both sides. So, we understand the God side of Jesus marked by goodness and eternity and beauty, but Jesus had to share the human side of who we are. There is a grand canyon of separation between us and God. And in order for there to be mediation, there had to be full identity with both sides. So the only way for us for for the gap between us and God to be bridged is for one party to cross to the other side, but we humans have no way to get to God. And so We are created in God's image, but one of us can't become God, so God became one of us. Paul says in Philippians 2, Jesus made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. So Jesus became human so he could bear the full consequences of our sin. Somebody asked me the other day, why did Jesus have to die? I mean, God is love. Why can't God just forgive Why was a sacrifice needed? And the answer is that without a sacrifice, sin doesn't really matter. And I don't mean the the little sins that you, you and I think about. I mean hatred doesn't matter. Racism doesn't matter. Injustice doesn't matter. Pride doesn't matter. Child abuse doesn't matter. Greed doesn't matter. Lust doesn't matter. Sin does matter, and therefore there must be consequence for sin. Now you say, well, I don't commit those really bad sins. When Christ gets a hold of your heart and you understand your heart, you no longer look condescendingly on those who are worse sinners than you are. Instead, you condition yourself to say, there but for the grace of God go I. I simply have had other influences on my life. Or I could be right there. And so in order for there to be a sacrifice that would fully except the consequences of our sin, Jesus actually had to become human. Not to sin, but to become one of us. There was no other way. The gospel could never have been the gospel if Jesus had not become one of us and shared our full humanity. So what happens in the mediation is that there truly is a win-win between God and us. God wins because he really loves all people and longs for all of them to come to repentance and to faith. So God wins by showing love, and we win because he became one of us and as a human being fully fully took the sins of not only each individual but of the whole world. I ask my confirmant sometimes, like, how can one person's death cover the sins of the whole world and sometimes they get it right away and sometimes they need a little prompting but it's because of who he is so if i die even if i were perfect if i died for your sins i could only cover the sin of one but if god dies he can die for the sins of the whole world and so mediation jesus is not a mediator in the sense of a negotiator going back and forth is a peacemaker. The two sides are no longer at variance because Jesus became fully human and in becoming fully human uh, accepted the full consequences of the sins of the whole world on himself. So the first word is mediation. The second is intercession. And for this I go to Hebrews chapter 7 where the writer says because Jesus lives forever He has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Here's another game changer. One of us is in heaven interceding for you and for me. One of us. He's our defense attorney. He's our liaison. He's our advocate. And we don't know exactly how all this works, but we don't have to. There's mystery in the Trinity. In fact, Paul in Romans 8 says the Holy Spirit is the one who takes our words that we can't even utter and turns them into prayers in keeping with the Father's will. But as my brother on Facebook said the other day about the 65th birthday present that I sent him, this is huge, he said. It's, this is related to an aspect of Christian doctrine that you might... Easily overlook and maybe you haven't even heard before do you realize that it's not theologically correct to say Jesus was a man Jesus is a man the incarnation is permanent Jesus didn't say, I'm going to become a man for 33 years and then I'm going to go back and live without my human body anymore. No, Jesus was born a human being, lived on earth as a human being, died as a human being, rose again with a glorified body that is like the body that we will share when we as human beings are with him in his presence. And that means he doesn't have to say in heaven like, Oh, I remember back when I was a a kid, or I remember back when I was a teenager, or I remember back when I suffered, or whatever. He he can say, I am a human being. I know what it's like to be human. Those, Those memories are imprinted in my mind and in my soul. And that is the one, that is Jesus, who is interceding for you and for me, the one pleading our case to say, This one is forgiven. The one who is listening to our needs and bringing them before the Father is one of us in heaven. That's huge. So we have mediation, we have intercession, and third, I want to close with empathy. Another text from Hebrews, chapter 4. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. So here's where we return to the question posed by an insecure sixth grader in Pakistan's boarding school 50 years ago. Did Jesus wet the bed? And I want to say it's a perfectly understandable question for a sixth grader. But well, let's talk about it as grown-ups today. It's not the point that Jesus dealt specifically with every issue that we deal with. He was never married. He was never a parent. He never faced old age. He never had to fight the urge to surf the Internet for pornography. He never had to ch- decide whether he'd buy a Ferrari or not and whether that was good stewardship. He never lost his cool because his team lost To the underdog in March Madness. So, when the writer of Hebrews says that he was tempted in every way as we are, the the better translation is he was tested, which means we actually broaden this. It's not just the being enticed to sin, but every test that we face as human beings, Jesus knows what that's like. So, he's able to empathize with our weaknesses. He knows what it's like to be dependent, he knows what it's like to be needy. He's, he knows what it's like for his body to scream to fulfill desires outside the will of God. He knows what it's like to feel sexual desire. He knows what it's like to have enemies. He knows what it's like to have the devil as his enemies. And there was no one on earth who ever had the devil on his back like Jesus did. He can identify with hunger and thirst and drop-dead exhaustion. He understands waiting on God when nothing happens. He experienced unanswered prayer. He was misunderstood and mocked and shamed and rejected and unjustly accused and betrayed and denied by one of his closest friends. You have pain? He experienced the worst kind of physical torture ever invented by humans with his flogging and his crucifixion. He knows what it's like to feel life draining from his earthly body and breathe his very last breath. He knows what it's like to be one of us. Jesus lived according to the flesh, Paul says in Romans, and it means that Jesus can say, I understand the pull of the flesh. I understand the lure of the devil. I understand what it means to have desires. I know that. And the writer of Hebrews says, and yet he did not sin. You say, well, then he can't identify with me. Oh, yes, he can. He understands the pull of sin, but he didn't sin. And he doesn't sit up in heaven going like, yeah, but you blew it that time and I never blew it. So like, you know, what's wrong with you? Instead, he says, there but for the grace of God go I. I know what it's like to feel what you feel, to be tested and tempted like you are. He also knows that he has advantages that we don't have, that he's the son of God, right? But he could not have died for our sins if he had not lived without sin. Pastor Paul said the other day, because he's one of us, sorry, I wrote that quote on a different page. I'm flipping back. It was good from Paul. He became like us so we could become like him. So he became one of us so that we would always know what the standard is. And what the writer of Hebrews says that is so powerful is because he knows our weaknesses and because he was tempted like we are, we can come to him and find mercy. So we come to him and say, Lord, I blew it again. He's not going like, I'm tired of this. Tired of you. You blow it every day. No, he's one of us and we can come again and find mercy for our sins and grace to help us in our time of need. And we can come to him and say, Lord, this is another test that I don't think I can handle. And he can say, I'm so glad you came because I will give you grace in this moment, and I will keep making you step by step more and more like me. He became like us so that we might become like him. That's the good news that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary and that he's one of us. Let's pray together. And just in a moment of quiet, would you take some portion of your life that you're going, I'm, not, sh- I'm sh- not sure that God understands this. He doesn't get me. And just tell him that you need mercy for where you've blown it. And in this moment, you need grace for your time of need. Father, you could have just created us in your image, with the possibilities of being like you. And you did. And you could have given us covenant and said, if you obey me and follow me, I will be your God. And you did. And you could have given us law and said, this is specifically what I demand of you. And you did. And you could have sent poets and prophets to explain all of that law and apply it and see it lived out and remind us where we fall short, and you did. But you went so much further when you became one of us. Thank you for sharing fully in all of our humanity. Because of that, we recognize again our need for you, and we come to you for mercy. And we lean on you for grace in every time of need. Meet us on this day, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So we close with a hymn that uh, was written in 1930. Now, those of you who know anything at all about history, think about 1930. Uh, The Depression has just started. We're between two world wars, and nobody knows how the future is going to play out. And this pastor, who was a rather controversial pastor, particularly for evangelicals in New York City, because he was an ardent advocate of the social gospel and really believed that the world could be changed by human effort, wrote this hymn, the words to this hymn, at the dedication of Riverside Church in New York. And I love the hymn because it doesn't just stick to we can change the world. God does want to change the world through us. It points us to leaning and needing and talking to the God of grace and glory who has stepped into our world and become one of us.